Is AI going to transform our communities and the way we see things? Most importantly, how does AI impact financial services and the debt sector moving forward? Welcome to the 12th episode of the Debt Talk podcast. I'm your host, Ripon Ray, and I will speak about artificial intelligence, financial services, and the debt sector. Regardless of your likes or dislikes of AI, there has been a huge interest in the subject. To get a thorough understanding of it, I have a broad range of panelists from academia, visionaries, tech gurus. In the end of the podcast, they are also going to give Debt Talk listeners top tips as to how to break into AI. To help me navigate such an exciting topic, I have Professor Carmine Ventre, Director of King's College Institute of Artificial Intelligence, who has carried out extensive research on AI. Douglas Silverstone, Director of Technology of Southern Housing and also known as a visionary, according to ChatGBT. Rachel Curtis, Chief Executive Officer and Co-Founder of Inizio, a debt recovery firm that use AI to complete affordability assessment. And finally, Mason Rizvi, founder of Elefenti, a debt management firm and a tech entrepreneur. Elefenti is currently working on AI to develop tools to create AI for debt-free advice agencies and their advisors. For those who are listening to Debt Talk and want to share your experience or want to listen to a subject of your choice, you can send me an email, rapon.ray at yourdoctordebt.com or on Twitter, yourdoctordebt. So before we get to the details of AI and move into the subject of this podcast, let me get Professor Carmine Vente from King's Scholars to give an overview of AI. So, on a simple note, Professor Carmine, what is the true nature of AI and what does it really mean? Well, AI has taken different meanings since uh, its inception. Maybe today AI is understood in terms of large language models or generative models like ChatGPT or DALI, uh, whereas until weeks ago, maybe people mainly associated AI with uh, machine learning or deep learning. I like to think about AI as an application of mathematics, in particular logical thinking and software engineering to teach computers how to take decisions. Uh, this notion encompasses rule-based algorithms. These are the ones that given an input, execute a sequence of elementary steps and compute an output. When it's not easy to define a sequence of steps to teach the computer how to behave, then we resort to data. Just think about a teacher teaching to kids what we do, we give a lot of examples to a software with the hope that it will learn and be able to generalize to new challenges that what we call unseen data points. With this approach, I'm sure you know that we've seen huge leaps in relatively short time. Now computers are able to understand, synthesize and generate, generate decisions and knowledge in ways similar to how people do. So how do we get here? And what has been the rationale behind um... Uh, many to create uh, an AI system? Yeah, I'd say it, it, it all started uh, as an intellectual challenge or intellectual curiosity that started in the 50s, 1950s, that is. And uh, maybe one um, thought experiment that we can uh, um, use as a, um, a, a springboard for this, known as Turing test, proposed by Alan Turing, is a good example. So the question was, can a person distinguish whether they are talking to a machine or a human? If said human can't distinguish, then it must mean that the computer is able to think uh, like humans in inverted commas. Now, between the 1950s and uh, what we've seen more recently, AI has gone through uh, several phases and uh, there's been a long uh, AI winter as it's, it's known. I think the problem was that although conceptually we developed the techniques, there was not enough computational power to test them or, or show that they were uh, effective in solving problems. For example, neural networks were, uh, you know, as a concept around since late uh, 50s, uh, but only came to the fore in early 2000s. 
I believe two main factors allowed this wave of progress from the technical point of view. And these are data availability and hardware power. So I'm, I'm sure you might have heard about the famous five Vs of big data. Uh, one of these Vs was volume. We produce a lot of data. So there's a lot of examples we can use to teach AI uh, how to um, generalize. But on the other hand, together with data, also processing power has become much faster. So the the idea was that, or the the, uh, the main um, progress has been the advent of GPUs, graphical processing units that were developed for gaming. So, you know, software gaming or uh, kids uh, having a nice time on, on, on computers, but they've turned out to be essential for the speed up in the compute that we needed to witness the remarkable results we see today. This is, you know, this is a technical, uh, if you like, rationale, but I think from the practical point of view, Many people jumped on board of, uh, of AI because AI can achieve impressive results on several different tasks on uh, across different domains. But what are the essential ingredients to a successful AI? Three main words. Maybe it's easy. It's what is your input, what is your output, and what technology you want to use. But let me try to be a bit more specific. For example, by focusing on machine learning. So if you want to use machine learning, then you need to determine three things what task you want to solve, what experience you have, and what's your performance measure. So what we, we want to see is a computer program that learns from experience, let's call it E, with respect to some tasks T and performance measure P, meaning that the performance for a certain task T measured by P improves with experience E. So that's it. We need, it to this, uh, we need these three elements. But a good understanding of what is known out there, what technology is known and what can be done is also necessary. These days AI gets mentioned for all sorts of problems, uh, but often you don't need all this power. For example, the first question would be, do you really need the experience to solve the task? And you, I see many students uh, falling in this trap and trying to use AI when it's not needed. And maybe a rule-based algorithm would suffice. I think there's also more to say to this. So I, I gave you this very technical definition of task, experience, and performance. But I think as the technology became uh, better and AI takes more decisions that pertains to people's life, lives, we realize that we also need more than just experience, task, and, and uh, uh, performance measure. And these days we talk about uh, responsibility of AI trustworthiness of AI and explainability of AI. So I think this is the new frontier uh, if you want to have a successful uh, AI system or AI tool. Where are AI being utilized and in what context these days? Yeah, so I mean, I have, uh, I'm gonna focus on the financial services sector given the, the, the topic of this uh, podcast. And I'm gonna give you two uh, different answers. The first one is uh, based on the data collected by two service run uh, with, from the, by the Bank of England, the Financial Conduct Authority for, with the financial sector in 2019 and 2022. And then I'm gonna close this answer with some of my personal interactions and, uh, and try to uh, think about that and, and give you an answer. So if we look at the service, what we know is that 72% uh, of the firms that responded to the survey reported using of developing ML applications. In 2019, this was two thirds, but of course the, the sample size and the composition was different. So what we can conclude is that a large uh, proportion of financial services uh, industry uh, are using ML. And the trend is due to continue. The, ex uh, the median number of um, uh, ML applications are expected to increase by 3.5 times over the next three years. So the, the survey, contains a wealth of data and it's super interesting. So for example, you can see that the most advanced use of ML currently it's credit underwriting and insurance pricing and underwriting. Insurance seems to be the sector where ML is used more within the, the core business and other, other sectors have a greater variety. There's also a very nice chart I find in terms of how far ahead in the, in the 
development process MLEs. So we can see that the, this, uh, um, again, uh, non-bank lenders have the highest percentage of ML applications that are critical and uh, others are just, for, for other business area, it's just 3% of application in business in critical business critical areas. So I would suggest if you really want to find a, a com complete answer to this question, to have a look at the surveys, because it's, uh, as I said, it's enlightening. For my personal interaction with banks and financial institutions, I think I've seen a shift in the last couple of years uh, alone. I think until two years ago, it was a niche area that some teams in some banks wanted to explore and it was less mainstream. I think now it's become, uh, it has become more established sector of the business and there is a push also from upper managements to explore uh, AI. And, um, you know, all, all the, the industry contacts I have, they'd like to try and adopt AI more widely if only at experimental or proof concept level, but there are many obstacles that need to be overcome for this to become uh, more uh, business critical. King's College must have carried out numerous research on AI. After all, you lead the Kingsway College's um, AI department. What have your findings have been so far within the context of AI? I'd like to summarize the work we do across three chapters that I name AI for finance, finance for AI, and the third one, for lack of a better name, finance and AI. So for the first AI for finance, what we really do, we try to use AI to solve the tasks that are important to the financial services industry in a better way, better in, in quotation marks. So what's, what I mean by that is that typically the solutions adopted currently are either computationally expensive, so they take a long time, because they need to produce, for example, a large number of future possible state of the world. This is known as Monte Carlo simulations, or it's based on analytical results uh, uh, that require assumptions that are not true in practice. For example, there are theorems that tell you what you should do in absence of market frictions, but we all know that markets uh, have frictions, transaction cost or, or, or something like that. So what we have shown, for example, here is that we can price derivatives very quickly by adopting a con a, a, a advanced mathematical concepts coupled with deep neural nets. And uh, we have a speed up, I think that goes from uh, 50 seconds for some 50 seconds of the current techniques used by uh, to, to price some of these uh, exotic derivatives to 0.01 second, which is uh, a good speed up. For the second chapter that I, I called finance for AI, we reconsider what's been developed in AI in other domains for the highly complex system that is finance. So finance, many of the characteristics of the, the other domains uh, that uh, are exploited to design AI are not valid anymore. So here, for example, we've seen how to produce good examples to uh, teach the AI. Uh, from in the noisy signals that one can get from prices in stock markets. We know that stock markets are very noisy. Uh, so that's why we need to come up with a way of getting good examples to use the so-called supervised machine learning approaches. And finally, for the third uh, chapter, which I, I named finance and AI, I'm a computer scientist and I like to design and analyze financial systems just like we do for any other system. And here the binaries between the two disciplines, AI and finance, become a bit more blurred in my opinion. And that's why it's so exciting to work in this area. And for example, we studied the extent to which different trading mechanisms, for example, continuous double auctions or auctions that are known as batch auctions that collect orders and execute orders uh, at certain fixed time, uh, lead to more stable markets. Ultimately, what we do here, we understand the interaction between different AI bots that are competing to make profit in the market and study their equilibrium state. I mean, I understand there was litigation in the US on copyright uh, and a complete ban on AI in Italy of chat GBT. Um, why, why is there a challenge against AI in many parts of the Western world? 
Yeah, this is a hard question for which there is not a definite answer. My my view is that this is a very complex matter that as a society we not we do not know how to deal with. And this is because progress has been massive and sudden, and people realize that some sectors of the economy could change dramatically. And I also think you know some of the headlines in the press have, have not helped. Having said that, I think it is good that we're having a discussion before we blindly adopt AI without safeguards. We've not done that well uh, for social media, for example, we, and we know all kind of um, you know uh, con consequences we've had for our society. So maybe it is a good thing that we're even asking these questions. And for example, we do not yet know who is accountable for the decisions made by an AI. Is it the programmer? Is it the user? It's not clear. I mean, we, we need to reach an agreement on that, and it's not easy. I'm not even convinced, for example, that programmers and the AI currently developed have the right skill level to, to even allow a, a, a wide use of AI. Copyright that you mentioned is a big one. If I ask ChatGPT for the code to solve a certain problem, and ChatGPT is simply copying code that it's seen online somewhere, there are a lot of issues to be considered around who owns that code. For this reason, I know that many big software houses forbid the use of ChatGPT or uh, derivate like Copilot to their employees, exactly because there's uh, this is uh, non-trivial non consequences on the copyright of that software. Um, many institutions, such as Experian, the credit reference agency, um, are holding back on AI due to regulatory uncertainties. Um, what are the current regulatory framework of AI in the UK, although Financial Conduct Authority is embracing innovation? Yeah, this is another one for which there's not an answer yet. It's very much work in progress. I know that uh, many regulators, uh, the CMA, uh, Competition and Markets Authority, Information Commissioner's Office, Ofcom and the FCA, uh, have come together to uh, in what they call the Digital Regulation Cooperation Forum to uh, ensure greater cooperation on these matters, on these regulatory matters. From my experience, what I have to say is that they are very active and they're reaching out to us academics to understand the technology and also the legislative landscape worldwide. They are very much using, and, and in particular, uh, I'm talking about my uh, interactions with the FCA, they are uh, using um, this uh, multidisciplinary approach and they really want to understand both the technology, societal issues, and legislative um, uh, landscape. I think it is correct to say that their goal indeed uh, seems to be that of regulating without stifling innovation. How will will they do that, or how we will do that? It's it's still unclear. What are the limits of AI within the financial services context, in your experience? Uh, many. So I think from uh, the the technical point of view, uh, we need an easy way to explain decisions made by AI. Uh, so as I said before, explainability or XAI, it's it is as it is known. It's one uh, of the current research uh, frontiers that we are trying to push, and we're trying to get ways of explaining the decisions of what we call black box models. And this is a big obstacle to the adoption of more advanced uh, black box AI. What more advanced, I mean that they are more powerful than what we call white box AI. If you go back to the survey I mentioned before and you look at what technique it's most used currently in the industry and in the financial industry, it is uh, uh, trees. I mean, it is white box models. And it's exactly because in white box models, you can explain why the AI has reached a certain decision. So that, that's number one. Another, another big obstacle, in my opinion, is the lack. There's not an easy way to assess the quality of an AI uh, bot or an AI system in finance. And why it is the case, it's because in finance, we only have one history. We can't do counterfactuals. We can't test technologies in stress test scenarios, unless you only use the data of particular stress test scenarios that we've experienced in, in history. But history, you know, doesn't always repeat itself. So I think when we will have a faithful simulator of financial uh, markets, 
we will be able to have a better understanding of AI uh, bots and maybe issue some sort of driving license for AI. And if in the simulator they behave well, they maybe can then be used in in the real world. I also think there are more less less technical barriers. One being culture within financial institutions. There is internal politics like everywhere, and adopting AI, it's not uh, easy. So from my, you know, I, I collaborated with UBS. We had a fantastic AI, and that did many, many good things. The way they are thinking to adopting it to overcome these cultural barriers is to use it at 10% of its power, just to show that it can help uh, uh, on, on that it can help. That's step number one. I also think that regulatory limits are a problem. So we know that Currently, we still want human response, uh, human responsibility and human accountability. So the use of AI will be limited and perhaps weakened, like we, I said, for UBS. I don't think this may be a bad outcome after all, and at least until we figure out how we want to deal with AI more widely. Are we expecting job losses as, as a result of AI or more jobs in different sectors? Yeah, this is uh, anyone's guess, uh, and I can only speculate. Future work is a big theme right now. Financial services already widely adopt computational tools. So my guess is that in the short period, if we assume that humans will need to be there to safeguard and check upon the AI, there will not be as many job losses as in other sector sectors. Actually, I think the sector may need more people skilled in intersection between finance and AI and not uh, fewer people. But yeah, as I said, this is very much um, an unknown. Thank you, Professor Carmine. Um, let me get Douglas Silverstone, Director of Technology of Southern Housing, into the conversation. Um, Douglas, from what you have heard so far, what are your initial thoughts on what Professor Carmine has said and how it resembles what you have seen and experienced? Yeah, I mean, it was very interesting to hear what Professor Carmine was saying about all of those. And I think the point I picked up on from what he was, where we were starting from was about what does AI actually mean? And it means different things to different people and at different times of growth, it means different things. And it's kind of all the way through from the 50s, you have that, if we went back to the 50s, Google would seem like artificial intelligence. You can just ask it a question, it gives it to you. Whereas now we think of AI as chat GPT or something like that. So that whole concept of what is AI, what is technology, I think is very interesting. And I think it's also very reminiscent of when you start talking about how do you govern it, how do you regulate it? We already have controls into how you regulate technology. We've always had to tackle with this and technology has always moved faster than regulation. So we don't know quite what it means to regulate because we don't know what opportunities it's going to come from. And I think that's some of the other things that the professor was saying about uh, to pick it through. First thing I've noticed on your LinkedIn page, according <laughs> to ChatGPT, you are a visionary leader and dedicated to technological advancement. But on a practical term, what does that mean to a, a regular Joe blog like me? So so that in itself is a really good example of AI being, it's a slightly tongue-in-cheek approach to it. And I, I get really cynical about AI use cases on LinkedIn and everything like that, because you see lots of people talk about lots of ways for ChatGPT to make their own, make that little bit more money for themselves, make a business case a little bit better, or you can just make a thousand pound and sit in the Bahamas. Um, and it's, I, I get frustrated that there's never actually a real um, social value to that. There's no, it's, how does it make the world better? Now, AI has lots of potential across all of those things to make everyone's lives easier. But the first triages you see of it are always, let's profit. And I've got quite a distinctive name, Douglas Silverstone. It's not, there's not many of us about. So I thought it'd be interesting to see what ChatGPT would say about me. So I just said, um, ChatGPT write an article about Douglas Silverstone. It came up with all this uh, article that I put on my LinkedIn profile a bit more, and that's where that quote came from. But it, the interesting thing for me was that that's quite grandiose phrasing. And it, it came up with, it was mostly, it was fairly accurate, but two things that it said was about that visionary leadership, um, which being sometimes a little bit more modest about it i wouldn't say that's what i am i say i like i talk out loud i talk only about technology so there are articles where i've talked about how you can use 
technology and housing. So ChatGPT has taken that bank of knowledge and put that in that place. And it started saying, I'm an entrepreneur. Now, I haven't got an entrepreneurial bone in my body. It's, for me, it's social value that drives me. But ChatGPT has taken what I'm talking about in that turn. Oh, yes, I'm an entrepreneur because of all the stuff that it goes on. And then the other thing was about philanthropy again, because I have a social interest. I'm not a philanthropist. I, I, I wish I was rich enough to be a philanthropist, but I do talk about tech and disability. I do talk about tech and debt and talk about all those sorts of things. So again, ChatGPT in its large language model has understood people that talk about that stuff and it's understood philanthropy and then it's just said, I'm this philanthropist. So it's kind of that, that kind of quote from ChatGPT is almost a self-humor joke of what artificial intelligence can be and can't be. And you, if you don't understand where it's getting all its information from, sometimes it's, le it's less relevant than it could be. From your, I suppose, experience uh, of debt and financial services, now, in what way AI is being used within these sectors and most importantly, the housing sector that you're part of uh, currently? Yeah, so I think similar housing and debt is, I, I think it's one of those circumstances if you look in the private sector it is about how you can maximize customer value how you can do all of those for us we are a charity we our our purpose to exist in the organization in the world is to make people have decent housing and it's the same for debt agencies not the housing bit but again they want less people in debt so the driver for what you want to use it for automatically changes if not in what the tools you use but in the reason you use them at least so we don't use AI to uh, maximize our income. We use AI to help people pay their rent. And I know that sounds like the same thing, but the, the, the way we do that and the outcomes of the AI models can be quite different. So it's not about financial profiling. It's about trying to understand personal circumstances so that when we get a phone call from a customer, we're able to direct them to the right place to get the right support. And so that there, there is a very big difference. And our aim is to reduce evictions. Our aim is to enable people to pay their rent, not maximize the profit from our housing. You see what I mean? So it's a very different approach. And AI is very vital for that in parts of the business about prioritization. The other thing that I think is worth picking out, we may come onto it a bit more in a minute, Ripon, but it's about um, I, there is no shortage of demand for housing. There is no shortage of demand for debt management, right? That the the market is saturated. There is always people there. There our our houses break. There is mold issues. There are overcrowded houses. All of these things happen, and we can throw people at it, and we can answer the calls, and we can try and solve those problems by more and more people, or we can put AI in the place so that we can deal with more issues. We can deal with more mold issues, and those people are focused on the ones on the on the edge cases that the AI doesn't pick up on. And I think for social value, that's kind of the business case for AI. It's not about reducing, it's about opening up access to more people. Well, then kind of goes to the next question. Um, to what extent does cost efficiency come into play to introduce uh, AI and call it innovation? When you're making a business case, it's very tempting to say in business circumstances to say AI will cost us a lot of money, but it will uh, save us X in staff time or it will save us X in process time. I think the reality is I don't think I've ever seen a tech budget. If you look at tech budgets today and you look at tech budgets in organizations 10 years ago, they're not lower. And we've had lots of technology automation in that time. If you look at the growth of CRM, mobile tele telephony, any other technology advance doesn't actually result in less technology budget. It results in more technology budget it was, and, and staffing as well. And I think part of that is the demand. Well, it is all the demand. It's it's about we're now able to do much more, much more effectively. If we took out the top technology layer, we wouldn't be able to operate as dynamically as we do. And the same with AI. When you put that in, it enables to do more faster. It doesn't necessarily save us money it might move where we check we put the money around but I, i've never been a investing technology doesn't doesn't always save you money i'm sorry to my uh, ceo i've said that out loud but, <laughs> but technology drives better business not saving money algorithms are 
data reliant and mm. AI is also data reliant. So what does algorithm actually mean and uh, how does it work on a, a product de development scenario? I think that's a very good point. I, I, the data governance, I think, becomes essential for that because your output is only as good as your input. If you've got rubbish data, you make assumptions. And assumptions when you're dealing with debt or housing can cause some very dangerous outcomes. You make assumptions based on your client base and you do the wrong action and you miss things. Um, and so algorithms essentially take a set of data, understand what the patterns in those data are, and then you apply a process to that set of data and it comes out. So if you said of all the people in the UK, where I live in Buckinghamshire, if I said all of the people in Buckinghamshire, what's the key need for housing? You'd probably end up with a set of houses that look very different than if you said, what's the key need for housing that look in Hackney, you know? And and so if I applied the data model in, that I've created out of the Buckinghamshire data model and then said, right, let's build a load of 10 bedroom houses with massive gardens, it's not going to work in Hackney. I'm being facetious, but you see what I mean? And it's that thing. So data governance, data ownership, data modeling, understanding what your key data is and collecting that, I think is a real challenge. And that comes back to something else that Carmine was saying, Professor Carmine was saying about, um, I think about the regulation is understanding what your organization wants to achieve is important. And so how you use the algorithms to achieve the organization's goals and the trust conversation you have with your customers, your residents, or the people you're dealing with is important because if you break that trust, the data you get is undermined and the, the value you're able to produce from it is undermined. So having a sense of what your corporate ethics are for AI is, is going to be very essential in the future. No doubt AI can be resource heavy. Uh, what types of work is required to develop um, AI initially? As an organization like ourselves, we don't create our own AI models. It's a very intensive work thing. So the reality is we work with partners that have AI models and they have invested in that and then they can use those across multiple customers to the customer's benefit. Um, so you mentioned Experian already, for example, they have a basic AI models that they do use. They might not be investing forward to that, but they invest in the money and then their, their payback is. It's very expensive and it's eye-wateringly so sometimes. Um, but then the efficiency and the outcomes it drives can equally be as useful over a longer term. And I think it, that is the key. You can't just throw money at it just to work out. Let's just have see what the AI gets. And a lot of businesses, we must have AI. We must have AI. We must have this. We must have this. And it never works. So you've, you've got to start with a business problem and say, what do we want to achieve? And again, back to what Professor Carmen was saying at the start, if there's no point doing AI if a single decision engine will work, if it's just automating a process, that's a lot quicker, much more efficient. And the temptation is to throw AI at it and take an expensive solution, whereas actually just a simple workflow will have the same outcome. So unless you start from the business, what am I trying to achieve? I want to get better debt management outcomes. I want to know what the debt solution is actually ask a few questions you know that already you get that through that process of there you don't need an ai model to do that you do need an ai model to help you to segment your customer base so you know where you should be targeting that kind of thing you did mention that um, to develop ai cost eye-watering amount of money so um, do we see the work being carried out in developing nations due to cost saving measures yeah i think so i think the amount of data you need is such a large thing. And the, the the IP involved in that is also very valuable. So you, I think there's a lot of industry duplication in that, and that drives more cost. Um, and when you then look at all the core data, so if you think about those capture screens to identify I am Doug Silverstone, I've got to click on a picture, How which one of these is a cat? Now, the, the reason they work is the computer doesn't know it's a cat. Right, but I I know that's a cat. So, in developing countries, there are whole factories of people that have got pictures of cats saying that's a cat, that's a cat, that's a cat, that's a dog, that's a hamster. That we know, and then they feed that into the model, and out of that, 
the models get better. So there are banks of data and you can replicate that with noises. You can replicate that with words. You can replicate that with anything, any sort of data source, but you've got to let the computer know what the outcome is that it's expected from and then the AI can take over. So I think there is a hidden human cost to generating AI. Um, and then all the development of those models is also there. How do you manage the consumer duty principle with AI product development? I think that that comes back again, it's the explainable AI. So you've got to be able to explain what you're doing. And that links into your corporate sense of ethics. So for us, uh, like Google always had that, we do no evil. They haven't said that recently, but they that's what they started, right? They do no evil. So if you're doing that, and the same for us, we want people in decent homes. That's the starting point. So how do we get people in decent homes? Um, and everything comes from that. So what ethical stance can we take to use AI to get people better homes? Um, and then there's all the regulation that says when you can and can't market from. So if someone is in debt to us and they're not paying their rent, we can obviously contact them. If the AI model suggests a group of people living in a certain area might be at risk of loan sharks, we can't go to that group and say, you're at risk of loan sharks, do X, Y, and Z. But we could do a marketing engagement in that area that says, loan sharks operate like this. If you want some advice and support to the community, contact us and you draw people in. And then when you draw them in, you talk to them about, what options there are and but it's they come to you and then the concept of the last bit is about co-creation and understanding your customer so we are a customer focused organization we've got four residents on our uh, trustee board all the way through we have customers so the way that we operate is very much customers what do you want us to do here and internally we're just about to set up an ai council that will help us establish where those ai use cases are what benefit they are and if they feel comfortable for Southern Housing too. And that's a really difficult thing to explain, but it's that comfort factor. Is this something that sits right with Southern Housing? Is this something that sits right for the sector and for our customers? Or is this something that even though it's possible, is just too much eek? Finally, Douglas, um, where do we see we are going with AR within financial services and the debt sector? I think if you'd asked the question two years ago, the answer would have been very different to where we are. Um, and the question, I think it's unknown, it's exciting. And I think on one level, I think it will be a lot more boring than we all think, because it will be Microsoft to put out a new tool. You can put alongside Microsoft Word and a, an advisor will just ask Word a question. It will be PowerPoint, tell me what model I can use. It will be Excel formulas. But underneath it, on the other side of it, it will also be very exciting because I think the tooling will become more and more accessible to smaller organizations and eventually it'll get out to the, the front line where it can make real difference. Lovely. Um, let me get Rachel Curtis, uh, Chief Executive Officer and Co-Funder of Initio, a debt recovery IA budget tool creator. Um, based on what you've heard, um, Rachel, from Professor Vente and Douglas, um, what are your thoughts over? Yeah, I think it's really interesting to listen to some of the themes that are coming out. And I think it's really clear this is a very complex and challenging area. And we are in the really, really early stages of understanding and developing um, how we apply the technology. I think that leaves me equally um, excited and scared, I guess. But then if I look at every major change that's happened in society, and I think this is going to be one of the major changes, then that's probably how people felt at, at the start of those as well. Um I think my other good tip is I'm going to um, ask ChatGPT to write a, an article on me as well, Douglas, and see what it thinks I am as well. I lovely, can't wait. Um, Initia has created a tool, which for our listeners, uh, can you explain uh, uh, where your product fits into the debt recovery market and what does it do? Sure. So we're using the new kind of generation of conversational AI, and that's to create a virtual agent that supports a consumer to complete a very detailed affordability assessment. So it's a primarily a B2B platform, um, and there's quite a few different use cases of it, because ultimately it's an affordability assessment. So you could use it in new lending, wealth management, property tenant onboarding. 
in the debt space specifically, what it's really about is helping consumers to complete what can be a really tricky and intimidating task for them. And that's usually the first really important step for them to understand and resolve their debt, which is where am I now? What is my income and expenditure? And we know that for many people in debt, they feel really stuck because they will need some help to do that process of getting their income and expenditure down. And if that help is offered by a human agent over the phone, the thought of speaking to another human to do it fills them with absolute dread and it becomes a block and they just do nothing. Um, and that leads to high suicide rates and all sorts of sort of tragic circumstances. So what we're trying to do is replace the human in that scenario with a really friendly character that can help that consumer at any time of the day and night to get started on that process. Okay, you've created a tool that's designed to address um, um, debt problem or problem debt. But what skill set do you need to create as a tool that you've developed for consumers with financial challenges? So I guess I know we're talking about tech this morning, but actually I think the most critical skill set to start in this arena and, and to get right is really that curiosity about the reality of the customers in this situation. So we've done a lot of rounds of um, user research now, and that's a real commitment from us to truly understand what that end consumer is going through. And that means we can use the technology to develop what they need. It's not just some super exciting sort of shiny tech that we then go out and look for someone that's got a problem that we can solve. You know, we've done it the other way around. Um, we've just done, we won an Innovate UK grant. And um, with that, we've been able to do some observed time with consumers actually using our virtual agent. And it's been really encouraging to see how we can help those customers that previously felt stuck by just using this technology in this way but um, I think that's the important skill set understand your market. Speaking of understanding um, how do you deal with um, individuals who are I suppose deemed vulnerable? There's lots of things we're trying to deal with in the process of, of applying the technology so one of the key benefits and I've spent 30 years in, in banks and financial services companies with very um, clunky technology so the benefit of sort of low code modern technology is that it's really flexible and configurable um, and we've developed a platform that will deal with the many different requirements of lots of different sectors so we're dealing with water companies banks um, local government central government that kind of stuff and they're all doing it slightly differently so what we've developed is a really configurable entry point so there's a set of triage questions at the start that you can design for whoever the business we're working with and their consumers at that point, you can capture things about, say, their existing debts or their vulnerability characteristics, any medical conditions, that kind of stuff. So you can do it right up front. But what you can also do is tailor that, use that information to tailor the income and expenditure capture process that you do. And again, make that very relevant and, and specific to that consumer. During that, you can capture vulnerability characteristics and debt that could be either pulling in records from elsewhere where they're already recorded as vulnerable on their existing debts. That could be using CR credit reference agency data to know what's going on or their open banking information. Um, and then you can also do other things like um, use other tools such as voice analytics. So if you're doing this in a, a speech basis, you can pick up, um, does that customer sound upset? Are they using certain words? Those kind of things. So you can identify those characteristics as you go through the process. So there's lots of different things you can, you can use existing data, ask them and listen to them, I guess. SCA banned debt packages and referral fees. Also, the um, individual voluntary arrangement has been under scrutiny because uh, customers have been missold um, of the option. How can you reassure debt talk listeners that your product does proper affordability ass assessment in line with the regulatory compliance? Yeah, that's this kind of why we exist I guess so I think the industry's got to do better for consumers in this space um, we were really pleased to recently secure a place on the FCA innovation pathway and I think that demonstrates that the regulators really committed to trying to support the industry I think we talked about it earlier around the sort of how do they they're usually trying to catch up with the technology because it's moving at space but they're trying to support the innovation but keep it safe as well so we're working really closely with the FCA and also some of the debt management providers to try and find a way to deliver a self-serve solution for consumers 
Now that's got to be easy for them to use, painless for them to get completed. It's got to give high quality and really consistent results. And all of that information has got to be auditable, all in a digital affordability assessment. So it's things like if you're using our virtual agent, that agent's never going to prompt or pressurize you either to make up a figure for expenditure you don't know. You can hear on calls all the time. I don't know what that is. And the agent might say, well, let's just stick 20 quid. That'll be fine. It, our agent is not going to do that. And also it's not going to be targeting an end number for disposable income that gets you to a certain outcome for a debt um, result. So I think that's where it is sort of a much safer way to do it. That means you can get consistency and fairness in the process. So what we have a scenario when the customer doesn't respond, i.e. won't pay instead of can't pay then where does AI fit in? So I think for us, um, engagement is really key and it's it's a big challenge in this space. So we've specifically designed our solution to help those consumers that struggle with that barrier of speaking to another human about their debts or equally where that's not convenient. So for some people, they want to resolve their debts and their finances at two o'clock in the morning. Not many of the call centres are open then. So providing a digital way of doing that is, is a good answer. Um, we've had some really strong results with um, no contact bases where we've been able to go in and offer a virtual agent to give the support that's engaged consumers that have been ignoring communications from that company for over a year because they're provided with that friendly non-judgmental support to actually get started on what they're trying to resolve. I think we can also do things like combining behavioral science. We can tailor journeys and really um, make those one-to-one experiences that can guide a consumer in a way that works best for them. And that will engage more consumers. What we're not doing, this is not aimed at can pay, won't pay. That's a very different question. And this is the people that want to do something but are really struggling with those barriers of of getting started. Finally, Rachel, where do we see um, the future of AI within debt collections and recovery? It is an interesting space and I think there's a there's obviously a lot of concerns about you know what how when we do things um, and I think for me we need to start in some really safe spaces and focus on some of those basic time consuming and emotionally challenging tasks that we can digitize that leaves agents free to add the real value that humans can do and I think if we test and learn carefully we can start to provide consumers with options for that sort of truly individual tailored support when and how they need it I guess for me if I think about the long-term future I suppose I would imagine having um, an app on the, the consumer's phone that handles their finances and their debts and it's working in the background all the time monitoring their situation and it knows so they've got variable income variable expenses and they know what's happening with that so rather than the process that we've got now of doing just an annual review we can be doing a consumer's review in the background every minute of every day in theory and what that will mean is that it can flex any debt repayments according to the situation so you're ending up with a really efficient and effective sort of debt management plan that works better for the business and the consumer because it's flexible to what's happening in people's lives. You can't do an I&E today and it'd be the same in six to 12 months. It has to change, but let's do that live and make that really simple for the consumer. Lovely. Let me get Mason Rizvi, founder of debt management firm Elefenti, and he's currently working on AI to develop tools for the debt advice market um what is your thought Mason, based on what you've heard so far from the panelists here i mean again it's very exciting hearing about how ai and the future of ai looks like from professor Ventre, and then of course the applications that douglas and rich were talking about very very exciting um you know financial applications are increasing with ai we're seeing that across the board we're seeing organizations like jp morgan and others you know, employing them in their businesses and applications of AI within personal finance, financial analytics, fraud detection, security and investment is going to continue. So um, we're really excited. I mean, our application is trying to improve the customer journey to support creditors, support the debt advisors, um, help their customers and build financial resilience for them. So yeah, an exciting future ahead for AI, for sure. You worked in the financial services market uh, for uh, for many years. And it, I mean, just, just like many other panelists over here, um, you know that financial planners and fund managers are also facing the same audit processes as the debt advisors who may offer debt advice for free in the community. Why do you think 
the audit is so extreme in the financial services market? It's really important to understand that when we're working with customers, especially in the financial services space, you know, the impacts can be huge on the customer's lives, you know, massively game-changing, life-changing. Um, and the duty of care is extremely important. And this is what the FCA, the regulators across the world in the financial space are there to protect. Um, and when you're, when we're talking about, um, you know, AI, especially like in this space, you know, we are, you know, we're not looking to replace debt advisors, for example, you know, that is not what we're trying to do. We're trying to help a tool that helps assist debt advisors, you know, sort of like the co-pilot that Microsoft is launching for business users. So it's a clever way of identifying customer situations, their risks, focus on solutions that can help execute them quickly. But that needs the decision needs to be with the debt advisors. And again, it's important because it's a regulated space. The FCA regulates the debt advisors, they're licensed, and they're the only ones who can give debt advice. And it's really important to understand that, you know, when you go into financial advice, for example, financial advisors can't advise on debt and debt advisors can't advise on financial products. There's a very specific reason for that because how the FCA looks at the risk and the training that those different advisors receive. And when we start thinking about AI in this space as well, um, it's important like for us to think about how that will be regulated. So conversations with the FCA would be that, how do how does the algorithms work? How do they actually provide advice? Um, and at this stage, you know, from our perspective, we are not looking to do that. We're not looking to replace the debt advisors. You have been working with Rooted Finance, a specialist debt advice charity in London, and co-designing a tool that helps debt advisors to provide a more impactful and client-centered journey to clients. As you're aware, the challenges faced by debt advice agencies are many. Demand are also outstripping capacity, complexity of cases, and more vulnerable clients in many situations. How does this tool help advisors to support their clients better? Yeah, I mean, you touched on it. Rooted Finance, for example, works with some of the most complex cases in debt advice. You know, people who are, don't only have debt problems, but also have legal challenges, for example, facing abuse, highly vulnerable sometimes. And, you know, these guys are doing a fantastic job. So our tool was built to support creditors and debt advisors. So we work together to figure out how best to support debt advisors. So we co-designed our solution um, to help identify customer needs, first of all, and then what solutions fit them best. And then how we can ensure that the debt advisors themselves can be guided through a journey to manage customer care. And then, you know, we're doing different things like capturing conversations, you know, text to, uh, speech to text, for example, and then highlighting pain points, sentiment, things like that as well, which just add to the benefits. And then of course, we can also, you know, provide some kind of solutions um, that the customer uh, might be eligible to, repayment plans, et cetera which might help the customer. You briefly talked about it, but how is the product uh, practically works? Um... We are looking to replace existing CRM solutions. So if you think about how CRMs work today, they basically, you know, you, you just input your data and you use that for customer engagement. And what we're saying is that, you know, the tool should do more than just data collection. You know, it should, it should be able to support the actual users provide the service better. So, you know, as I mentioned, it's a co-pilot for advisors, in a sense, guiding them through the process, helping them make their job easier. Um, but we do that further afield as well. So we also uh, support creditors. So, you know, we can help them provide preventative solutions in terms of identifying people and uh, how to support customers. And we're working with energy companies, housing associations, banks in that space. Um, and then on the other end, what we're on the debt advisor side, what we're trying to do is help them, first of all, identify the needs of the customer, identify which solutions would be best for them. So if you think about a, a debt advisor taking a customer through a journey, you know, the first step is to find out, you know, what's wrong and what's their situation. And then going through that process to the point where they can say, okay, what solutions might fit them? So what the tool does is based on the underlying data, 
can bring up possible solutions for the debt advisor. But the debt advisor, at the end of the day, will have to select those themselves. And then there's on the reporting side as well, it's AI powered, which means it can pick up on trends and predict outcomes uh, on the reports as well, which means it's it just helps organizations improve their services year on year. So what processes are you using to refine the tool for advisors? We're using the same processes that, you know, uh, the professor mentioned and Douglas was talking about, you know, it's about um, using data to feed our ML model to learn how to better identify risks and customer situations. Uh, we're also working very closely with advisors, you know, on how they work and the regulations that govern their work to continuously improve the product. Um, and then, of course, you know, when we put cases through, you always have the exception to the rules. And that always helps us guide into improving you know, both the algorithms and the, the product itself. Many of your customer base uh, is deemed vulnerable. Um, they have language problems, uh, mental health issues, just to name a few. Can AI take the job of death advisors knowing that the customer base is deemed vulnerable? At this point, no. I would say, you know, with all of the advancements still, um, you know, the models aren't ready to handle that kind of um load. I mean, you know, our solution, for example, doesn't replace them. It, it augments the dead advisors. Um, so, you know, you still need that human expertise to be able to deal with it. And there's a lot of experience that goes into this. An experienced dead advisor knows how to deal with different situations, for example. Um, you know, of course, over time, you know, as the models refine, you know, there might be opportunities there, but it will also depend on the regulator. You know, this is a regulated space. So to replace a debt, you know, debt advisor with an AI model will require the FCA to approve that. And of course, you know, as the professor was saying as well, there's still some way before, you know, that kind of common re regulation is going to come into place and how it will be implemented within the FCA and very specifically into debt advice. We don't have the answer to those questions yet. Lovely. Um, for those who are listening um, to Debt Talk podcast and want to share your experience uh, or want to hear a subject of your choice, you can get in touch with me, ripon.ray at yourdoctordebt.com your or Twitter, yourdoctordebt. Let me get back to my panelists who are uh, coming from diverse background to provide Debt Talk listeners with top tips to those who are trying to break into AI. So let me start with Professor Carmine. Yeah, so, I mean, as it's been said, I think the important uh, thing to, to figure out is exactly what you want to do and understand whether AI is the right tool. <clears throat> and uh, on top of that, I would advise not to follow the latest technology because this you, you can't keep up. So my suggestion would be to go back to principles, understanding the concepts, and then you will be able to uh, one will be able to to make uh, the transition to whatever is the latest technology. And Douglas? Yeah, similar. I'd, I'd say stay true to your core principles. Understand what you want to achieve and then work out the way to do it. And if AI is the answer to that, it'll come. If AI is not the answer to that, don't be afraid to do something different. Rachel? And we're all beautifully aligned on this one. I think for me, it's about apply it to something that you already have a lot of experience in or and uh, are really passionate about. So being able to make a difference with a real life application of something that's solving a real problem will help you avoid those vanity projects that you might get sucked into. And finally, Mason. And uh, I think very similar as well. I mean, you know, what I would just add is like, you know, having worked in, in large organizations, I've seen that, you know, application of technology can just accelerate that change or whatever that delivery is. And so unless unless there's real purpose, positive purpose behind technology, you're just accelerating whatever the underlying process is. And at the moment, the current system puts more people into problematic situations and vulnerable situations and application of technology within existing systems just means that that will just accelerate that problem. So my 
recommendation if you're going into AI would be to, first of all, have that clear purpose of positive outcomes for customers and then apply it. And, you know, that will hopefully change the system for the better. I would like to thank my panelists for giving their precious time to speak on AI, financial services and the debt sector. My next podcast is on the cost of financial exclusion. Um, I want, I do want to finish off with this episode by stating that Debt Talk has been running for a year in this month. So I'm very grateful for all the support Debt Talk received from the UK and globally. Uh, it would not have been successful without excellent panelists like this month who have given their precious time and shared their valuable knowledge. And of course, uh, I'm also grateful to my listeners who have been emailing me with their thoughts. So thank you for listening to Debt Talk podcast with me, your host, Ripon Ray.